some of the things that really common themes that couples struggle with is communication and and lack of healthy communication leads to a lack of empathy, which can potentially result in a lot of anger and resentment and arguments where it feels like you're arguing about the same thing over and over and over again, when really it's not, the issue is not this argument. It's all of the underlying things that have not been addressed. And so some of the tips that I give the couples that I work with um, is focusing on impact instead of intent. What up, what up, what up? This is Three Brothers No Sense. I'm Tavares Ferguson, and we're bringing to you a special episode of Three Brothers No Sense. We're bringing a special brother for the next few weeks, Brandon Davis. He's going to talk to you guys about COVID-19 on an educated tip. Brandon, take it away. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. All right. Welcome back to our third edition of this special uh, podcast series on COVID-19 outcomes for the African-American community. Uh, this episode is going to talk about psychology and well-being and also some social psychology. And again, for the third time in a row, we are punching above our weight class. And so let me introduce our three guests for today. We have uh, Dr. Kia Wiggins, who is a licensed psychologist and certified group psychotherapist in the state of Florida. She earned her bachelor's degree in psychology from the University of Alabama at Birmingham, a master's degree in community agency counseling at Auburn University, and a doctoral degree in counseling psychology from Indiana State University. She is a visiting assistant professor at the University of West Florida. She has a small private practice where she specializes in relationship issues. Uh, Dr. Wiggins Jackson has special interest in African-American mental health. She currently serves as a board member for the local African-American Heritage Society. Dr. Wiggins Jackson enjoys connecting with others to promote awareness of skills that promote healthy interpersonal relationships and African-American mental health. Our second guest is Dr. Gabrielle Smith who is a social psychologist and assistant professor of psychology at Texas Women's University. Dr. Smith received her bachelor's from Spelman College and a master's degree in women's studies and a PhD in social psychology from the University of Alabama. Uh, Dr. Smith's research examines the intersection of marginalized social identities with specific emphasis on race, gender, and socioeconomic status. Primarily, her research centers on how experiences at the intersection of multiple identities impact predict and define the overall quality of life, health outcomes, and success in both academic and work domains for marginalized populations. Dr. Smith's previous work explores how social identities exacerbate and buffer against social problems for African-American women, women in the workplace, and U.S. Black immigrant populations. The third guest is Dr. Natasha Thrower. 
uh, she is a psychiatrist who completed her general psychiatry residency at Harvard Longwood in Boston, Massachusetts. She is currently a child and adolescent psychiatry fellow at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, Texas. Uh, Dr. Thorne will begin a forensic psychiatry fellowship at the University of California, Davis this summer. Uh, as a juvenile forensic psychiatrist, uh, she plans to address mental health disparities in the juvenile justice system. Again, thank you, doctors, for coming and uh, participating in our special edition. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. Appreciate the invitation. Yes, thank you. Thank you. All right, so let's start uh, macro and just get a little smaller. So from your perspectives uh, as uh, expressions in the field of psychology, where was the African-American community and and mental health? Like, what was that relationship prior to the coronavirus and the disruption of our society? Well, I think this is what comes up for me whenever I see um, the videos. I, I live in Pensacola, and there was a block party in Pensacola. And I'm not sure if you guys saw that on social media, but there was a lot of a hype around this block party. And it's like, why? It, you know, it's mostly African-Americans. Uh, well, that's basically all African-Americans. And uh, the question was, why are these people not following the CDC's recommendations? And um, unfortunately, there was no mention, of course, in the media of institutional racism, the distrust of certain institutions, whether they be medical institutions or even psychological institutions. Um, And so I don't think, I mean, if I had to kind of summarize, I think you could have a whole dissertation on the relationship between, you know, African-Americans and, you know, the medical field or or whatever. Uh, It just wasn't good. It's not good. Um, and, and I think that there were some very valid points that were made on the previous podcast about this, about, you know, African-Americans and blacks experiences of going to the doctor when they're sick and how they're received when that happens. And so you have those little, you know, microaggressions that happen on that level. But then, you know, they can have some pretty hefty consequences or effects on the community as a whole. And you don't have to actually have had that experience. But if, you know, someone in your family has had that experience, someone in your community has had that experience, it fosters a distrust that kind of blankets the community as a whole. Yeah. And just to echo that, I think um, for a long time in this country, there's been a reluctance um, on the parts of African-Americans to access physical and and mental health care um, because of this general distrust of the medical establishment. Um, I think when it comes to uh, addressing the mental health needs in the African-American communities, you know, it's an issue of access to care. Um, I think uh, stigma, you know, uh, religious institutions or sort of like spiritual beliefs being kind of seen as the, you know, the only way to really deal with um, issues with your mood or depression. Um, And also I think that, you know, it's hard to find um, the right provider. I think, I, you know, a lot of my patients prefer, uh, would prefer to have, um, you know, a therapist of color. Um, there's just a comfort there. And I think that that's really hard to come by. Yeah. And to, and to echo what my colleagues stated, is really when we talk about medical mistrust, we also have to acknowledge like the roots of it and how valid those experiences are because the Tuskegee experiment did happen and all of these other experiences did happen to lead us to the point where uh, African-Americans tend to be more hesitant about taking what medical professionals say at face value as this is what I need to do because they have told me um, that this is wrong and this is not okay because these experiences 
have distance or strain that relationship um, between the Black community and the medical field. Right. I think that's a really good point. And when we look at the Tuskegee experiment, sometimes there's this argument that, well, you know, that was so long ago and, you know, there may not be, you may not know someone who was directly affected by that, but there's the generational transmission of trauma that happens as a result of those types of experiences. So again, you know, you didn't have to be physically present for the event for it to affect your life on it and and how Mm -hmm. you view the medical community. Mm -hmm. But what about the the prevalence of mental illness? I I looked at the uh, Department of Health and Human Services website. They have Office of Minority Health. And they were talking, uh, essentially, they were saying that poverty is a contributor to mental health. But even when you look at poverty, uh, they said that they had a study uh, about psychological distressors. And they said African-Americans that were below the poverty line were two times as likely to have psychological distress compared to people, compared to non-Blacks, who were at twice the level of poverty they were. Mm. So I'm, I'm, I guess my question is, what like um, what, what are some of these stressors that they that, that black people are facing that, that that creates a different environment? And also, what are some of the more prevalent things that you see in your practices uh, that African Americans are dealing with as far as like psychological stress and mental health issues? So um, I think I'm familiar with um, you know the study that you're referring to that. Um, um, basically, you know, suggests that black communities are more vulnerable to the impacts of um, of trauma in particular dis- particular disasters, particular types of disasters. Um, as you mentioned, you know, 27 percent around there live below the poverty level compared to about 10.8 percent of whites. And um, I think um, a lot of the, the households are single parent households um, headed by a woman with, you know, no husband. Um, there, there are a large number, uh, disproportionately large number of African Americans who aren't covered by health insurance. And as you guys mentioned in an earlier podcast, you know, there are health disparities when it comes to, um, rates of heart disease and asthma, cancer and stroke. So, you know, I think all of these things sort of tie into what we're seeing um, in some of the statistics that African-Americans are, you know, 10 to 20 percent more likely to experience um, serious psychological distress. And I think a lot of these factors, um, you know, are, are, are part part of the, the problem. Yeah. And I'll just add something that's already been mentioned about health seeking behaviors. And um, Mm -hmm. unfortunately, we're less likely to, you know, utilize. Well, you know, we may not have access to resources, but those of us that do um, sometimes are less likely to utilize those resources. Or, you know, I'm working in a community where I'm one of very few African-American female psychologists. So it could be, you know, someone already mentioned that there's a preference for, um, you know, having a clinician that can, you know, that looks like you or has similar background that may not be an option for them. If you're, you know living paycheck to paycheck or, you know, working more than one job, sometimes the traditional hours that are offered by mental health facilities don't work with your schedule. And so even if you wanted to go and you have the resources to go, you may not have the ability to do that. Um, And like someone else already mentioned, you may not have the same level of support from from others as someone who, you know, has more resources would. Yeah, a lot of the, the patients I see, so I see predominantly children now, and a lot of them are from um, single parent households. And, 
you know, it's it's nearly impossible sometimes to get time off work when you're yeah. the, you know, the primary breadwinner, the mm-hmm. sole provider for the family. Uh, transportation is is an issue. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, there when it comes to child psychiatry, especially, um, you know, resources are limited. There's not there aren't a lot of child psychiatrists and, and therapists and in these communities. And so just making it um, finding some, uh, um, you know, sometimes the waits are months and months and months long. And so it's hard to get into treatment and to, to remain in treatment uh, because of some of those barriers. And then I'll just add that, like, you know, there is an argument for, you know, a psychology that does not pathologize African-Americans. And, you know, I think that, you know, Joseph White, the father of black psychology, really did a service to the psychological community when he wrote Tour Black Psychology. It was a paper arguing in the 70s, arguing for black psychology. So a lot of clinicians have been trained, use, you know, using theories that were developed by white men and, you know, normed on middle class white people. And so they attempt to use these theories to understand the experience of or the African-American experience. And then a person is pathologized. And so let's say that you do get off of work and, you know, you do make it to a session and then you feel like you're not really being heard or understood by the person. If there's not that connection, it's, it's, you're going to develop, you know, stigma or, um, you know, the belief that this is not for you, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I was uh, looking at a, a NIH National Institute of Health website as well. And they said that uh, in the African-American community, there's more, there's a higher prevalence of depression, anxiety, and phobias. And they said, they said that that was it, it, higher, higher prevalence in African-American community, specifically with African-American women. Mm-hmm. So is, is, there, is there something you can expand about, help us understand that? I don't know that there's necessarily a higher rate of depression um, uh, among African-Americans. Mm-hmm. You know, mental illness, it, it really doesn't discriminate. I think there there may be, you know, African-American youth, for example, who are exposed to violence might be at a greater risk of developing PTSD. Um, and so if you are, um, you know, a child and you, you know, in, in certain environments, you might be more likely to have adverse childhood experiences that can lead to depression or PTSD or anxiety. Um, but, you know. As far as I'm aware, there I don't think there's much of a difference in terms of um, um, the prevalence of, you know, mood disorders. or. Uh, yeah. And I mean, what you're saying would be true for any community as well, any population. Mm-hmm. You know, when you're exposed to trauma at an early age, you are more likely or more susceptible to developing symptoms of PTSD. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's not about being African-American or your race uh, per se. It's about the experiences that might be more common in certain um, socioeconomic you know, populations, if you will. So it's, it's more attached to your environment than it is to your to the person. Yes. So I guess uh, I would. OK, so that that said and understood, looking at how COVID-19 has really disrupted you know, just like everyday life for individuals and from, from, you know, a psychological perspective, from a social psychology perspective, you know, what should we be looking for? Because now we're in the house with these people, with our family members, kids and significant others and things like that. What should we be looking for? Um, and and uh, as a, as a, as science to, to that we may need to intervene or help someone uh, get through a tough, tough patch in their time, tough patch in their life right now. 
Well, I can tell you that in my caseload, I've had people that have reported an increase in um, anxiety, uh, increase in depression, and how that manifests in terms of, you know, the behavioral symptoms that you would um, that you would experience. There are people that are struggling with getting out of bed on a daily basis, not feeling purposeful, you know, not having uh, having concerns about how they're going to financially support themselves. Sometimes anxiety can be experienced somatically. So sometimes people don't believe that they have anxiety or depression because maybe they don't have like the typical symptoms where they're not excessively worrying all the time or they don't feel suicidal, but they might have unexplained um, stomach aches or, you know, rapid heartbeat or, you know, they might feel you know, they might have other somatic tension. You know, a lot of times anxiety is just experienced for some people as bodily tension. Their entire body hurts. It feels like they ran a marathon, but, you know, they haven't. And so those would be some symptoms. I have some clients that, you know, will regurgitate. They'll wake up and just throw up in the morning because they're, you know, they're so anxious. Those would be a few signs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think we also have to um, think about the, the fact that we're not all in the house with other people. And so while we're talking about what we're doing right now, staying at home and staying in in place, really being careful about our language and and not calling it social distancing, but leaning more towards calling it physical distancing, because right now we need those social connections because as humans, we are social animals. Yeah. So making sure that we're not socially isolating ourselves because when we say things like social distancing and social isolation, we're implying that we're not socializing when this isn't really true. We need to be socializing more than ever now. While we're physically distancing from each other, um, we need to not retreat into our silos. We need to connect with each other uh, more than ever because there are people who don't have that social connection. And we really need to make sure that we're cultivating those connections, especially when we're talking about Um, the Black community, we tend to be a lot more collectivistic in nature than what is branded as the American way um, in terms of Mm -hmm. how we we interact with other people. And so whether it's, you know, engaging in social media or phone calls or watching the Teddy Riley versus Babyface thing on social media, uh, making sure that you are engaging in some type of social connection so that you're not feeling disconnected from the world. I think those are excellent, excellent points. And um, it speaks to, I think, what's unique about this uh, type of uh, natural disaster, this pandemic, is that, you know, so many people are affected so broadly. And, um, you know, you're either, if you're not directly affected by the illness, you're indirectly affected by the changes that the society has implemented to to mitigate the spread of, of COVID. And, you know, now I don't want to say social distancing, but, you know, social distancing, um, being social, this type of crisis has really knocked out many of the usual ways that uh, people typically cope when they're under a lot of stress and, you know, not being able to go to the gym. You know, that's something that a lot of people do. And, and now they can't, you know, not being able to be physically around loved ones or spend time with friends, you know. Um, so it's really challenging a lot of us. And so I think it's it's people who not 
not only have like a pre-existing psychiatric um, history, but, you know, people who've never experienced problems with their mental health in the past, I think, are are struggling. And what I'm seeing sort of commonly or on a broad scale is that it is, you know, maybe not full-blown depression or um, generalized anxiety, but uh, more of a distress reaction as people are trying to adjust to, you know, staying home and being out of work. And so, um, as someone mentioned before, you know, a lot of times this will just manifest as, you know, a change in the sleep pattern. You notice that you might start eating a lot or you lose your appetite or you're feeling physically tense and you have unexplained headaches or stomach aches. Um, just being, I'm uh, seeing a lot of, and a lot, a lot of irritability. So even though these things, you know, might seem sort of minor or might not meet full criteria for, you know, full-blown psychiatric um, disorder, they do cause, you know, distress and impairment and affect not only the individual, but the people um, who they're in close quarters with, their families, their relationships, their coworkers. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. There's a huge interpersonal component here that I think that you kind of speak to in your question. And um, I'm, I'm glad that you know someone already mentioned that um, it's important for people to find ways to stay connected. But then there are people who are spending time with their family in a way that they never have. And if there was already some level of dysfunction there, then what I'm seeing, I see a lot of couples in my practice. And so there's been a surge now in, in couples who have been reaching out to me looking for couples counseling because they had problems that were, they were kind of sweeping under the rug that now are being magnified by, you know, the amount of time that they're having to spend together. And so I do think that it's an opportunity to, you know, if, if you can't leave the house and there are things that you can't do, this is a great opportunity to invest in your own personal growth or, you know, the health of your relationship. If before you were putting it off because, you know, you were running from here to there, you had to take the kids to soccer practice or wherever, and now you have all of this time, this would be a great opportunity to find healthy ways to invest in building healthy communication, you know, building empathy for each other, those types of things, which are things that are um, a lot of times when people come to counseling, couples counseling, especially those are things that the relationship is lacking. Mm-hmm. Well, let's let's stay let's stay on the families because on one end you have the couples, let's say couples with no kids, and I know that I saw an article out of uh, Kansas City, and the Kansas City Police Department said that domestic violence was up twenty two percent. And then the second part of that, I guess, the question would be: now you have parents who have the stress of not having a job or working from home, stressed about they're going to keep their job. Now they're not only breadwinners; they're now teachers. They're now entertainers for their children. They're now like, you know, they're trying to find activities for them, they're doing all that stuff. And so like, can you speak to those two different dynamics about the, you know, just the additional stress and also, you know, first and foremost, the domestic violence, but also the additional stress of having to become not only a parent, but a teacher, an educator, a physical education teacher, all that type of stuff. I know a lot of parents who definitely have more appreciation for their teachers. Since this <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I think now they, they kind of see, you know, what um, the teachers have to deal with. And, you know, I, I, I can't, you know, I personally don't have kids, but it's hard to imagine um, how, you know, a parent can balance all of that child care, having to teach these kids. And, um, but I think parents, from what I'm seeing, you know, parents are very uh, stressed 
and um, having a hard time coping. And kids are, are like sponges, you know, they they perceive the stress that their parents are under and they, they mirror that. Um, and so mm-hmm. I think in a lot of ways it can make for, you know, uh, unhealthy home environment, you know, for, for kids, um, school is where they go. Sometimes if they don't have the best home environment, school is where they go. You know, that's, that's their place to, is a place of respite for them. Um, that's a place where they have structure and now all of a sudden they're, they're home in, um, you know, a chaotic environment and, um, it's really, really impact, impacting them. Not sure if that addresses part of your question, but mm-hmm. yeah, it can be difficult too for parents who um, have really strong identities. As you know, they really identify with their career, and they felt like you know they really kind of identified with their role as uh, a parent. Those identities can really be clashing right now. And so, you know, if if they don't have childcare, for instance, but they found themselves as being, you know, very uh, industrious in their career, they can really struggle with feeling like an industrious parent, you know, productive parent and still be that person at work while they're working from home and having to find ways to entertain their kid, you know, who is either entertaining him or herself in the other room. There can be a lot of guilt that comes along with that feeling like, oh, my God, I'm a bad parent because I can't you know, supervise or interact with my kid and I'm here and he or she doesn't understand that we can't interact right now because I'm at home and they think that if I'm at home, we're supposed to be playing together. That's true for younger kids who, it's, you know, it's hard to kind of explain, you know, mommy can't play with you. You have to whatever. Mm-hmm. So I've, I've seen that, you know, where people are really struggling with those identities and they're feeling like they're in competition with each other and not knowing how to resolve that can be difficult. Are there any things to, I guess, like a, uh... To look for or to be wary of a if you know for like partner violence but b as a parent you're so stressed i can see a situation where you know your kids are just jumping all around you're trying to make dinner you halfway on the phone and whatever and like it just the stress gets so much you might take it out on them like verbally or maybe even like physically or something like that maybe like warning signs that parents can look for to see that to, to know that their top is a, their you know their cap is about to pop and, what, and things they may be able to do to, like, to relieve some of that parental stress. Well, I think self-care is really important. If you're starting to feel anger or resentment towards your child or your partner, it's probably a good time to, um, if you have the ability to engage in some self-soothing activities. And those can be things that you can do um, as a part of the group, or they may be in, in, in it may be necessary for you to have time where you're separating from the group. So, you know, in couples that are struggling and families that are struggling with um, spending a lot of time together, maybe there's boundaries that need to be established where, you know, you go in the kitchen and you food prep for an hour and then I go and I'll go, you know, read my book for an hour and then we'll come back together. Um, there's a lot of research to support meditation and, and, you know, the amygdala, which is the emotional center of your brain and, uh, when you have a regular meditation practice, and it doesn't have to be like 20 minutes where you're alone, but where you have a, med- a regular meditation practice, it could be five minutes or less, five to seven days a week. Um, if you end up feeling less reactive, it gives you more patience. Um, you know, you have a greater sense of peace. Um, so there's a lot of research to support that practice. Deep breathing, there's 424 breathing, that's inhaling for four seconds, holding your breath for two seconds, and then exhaling for four seconds is really helpful in regard to when you're starting to feel really anxious or revved up. Um, it helps you to, it helps your body to calm down and relax. If you're someone who panics, 
Um, a lot of times what ends up happening is you, your breathing your, is shallow and you don't realize it. And so what you need to do is make sure that you're exhaling. A lot of times I'll be working with clients and we'll be maybe talking about trauma or something that um, they have a visceral reaction to. And I'll recognize that they are not exhaling. And they're just inhaling. And that's how you end up going into panic and having a panic attack. So making sure that you are exhaling all of your air out will help to calm you down. Oh, I guess, I mean, the next question would be, you know, when this first happened, the first thing I thought when I and I knew I had to work from home, because I'm not a home worker. I'm an office person. I don't, I don't like to work from home because I'm too easily distracted. And so I thought about making an office space that was, you know, tried to, trying to make an office space. But also, primarily, I thought about a routine because I was thinking that I have a routine every day. And so how do I reestablish a routine? And, you know, from a psychological perspective, even from a social psychology perspective, how important is that routine? It's vital. It is very, very important. There's uh, a concept in psychology called behavioral activation. Um, this is basically doing something before you feel like doing it. And then, you know, getting that positive reinforcement that makes you motivated to continue to do it. So if you don't want to get out of bed, but you've established this schedule or this routine for yourself and it's a realistic routine. So that had that's an, a very important piece to it. It has to be something that's realistic. So um, because otherwise you'll um, feel like a failure and it will reinforce your desire to stay in bed. So, you know, you, you have this routine for yourself, you get up, if you're able to begin checking things off your list, you start to feel better about yourself. And then it positively reinforces you to continue with that routine. And the thing that I think people struggle with is making adjustments to the routine. So let's say that you have developed a routine. It seems realistic, but you only got, you know, five of seven things done. It may be time to readjust, you know, maybe you, had a little bit too much on your plate for the day. But I think having a routine is really important because it keeps you from falling or spiraling into a place where you're feeling unproductive and then you feel guilt for feeling unproductive. And then it starts to spiral into potential, you know, depression or anxiety. And I think that goal setting is very important. And so being able to check those things off of your list and motivate yourself to, to go about your day, but also being careful not to overexert yourself. And I think um, a lot of times we, we're, we're making these upward social comparisons right now about our productivity and trying to be as productive as possible because I'm at home and I'm not teaching the same load or I'm not doing the same things that I would do at work. And so I should be more productive, um, but also leaving space for yourself to adjust to the shift in how you you navigate your daily life and making sure that you don't put pressure on yourself to overproduce. So being, again, realistic with yourself and setting goals that don't drain you. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, what about like new behaviors? Uh, because, you know, obviously we're all hypersensitive and concerned about like, you know, getting sick uh, or, or, you know, doing things like that. And so I'm like spraying off the boxes when they come from uh, Amazon, uh, washing my groceries off when they when they come. Uh, I found myself personally, that's the first time in my life I ever started measuring the dishwash, the, the, the clothes washing liquid. You know, because I'm mindful now that I have to go back to the store or order at the store, which may cause some virus to come in my house. And so I think subconsciously I'm measuring it so I can I can keep it for as long as possible as not to like have to have an outside interaction like that. And so, I mean, are those things 
just like coping mechanisms, right? Or, or are, we, are we doing the, how, how do you know when that goes too far, when you're doing too much of that? So, so I think um, what you're describing, I think, could be considered, um, you know, um, normal behavior. You know, there, there may be a part of you that wants to, you know, maintain some sense of control when there's so much uncertainty, um, you know, out there uh, around this virus. So, you know, behaviors like that, I wouldn't be too concerned about. I think it comes down um, when you're noticing things that are impacting um your quality of life, um, your daily functioning uh, that are uh, prohibiting you from getting things done that you need to get done. Um, if they're, you know, affecting the people around you and, and they're complaining, it, it might be worth uh, it. That's when I would start to think that, you know, it might be something that's problematic and uh, you you could consider, you know, talking to someone about it. But things like that, I mean, I noticed a lot of people are, are, I think it's normal to find some way to cope. You know, some people are, are um, they're watching the news much, much more than they would before. And I think that can be fine, but then there becomes a point where, you know, it can be counterproductive and it can uh, make you uh, more fearful. So I think it, it's somewhat of a balance. Everybody's going to have their way of coping uh, differently, um, but as long as it's not really you know, impairing your function or, or your quality of life. I think it's it's considered normal. And I, I think you're really referring to like the social norms or the informal rules of behavior that we have and how they're, they're shifting during um, mm-hmm. our experience with the pandemic. And we can't really say for sure how much this will be a long-term shift or a temporary shift until we know uh, how long we'll be monitoring our behavior. But things like shaking hands, for for instance, is not something that you would do right now, even or running up and hugging someone that you that you know and you have a close relationship with. If you saw them in the grocery store right now, when you're going on your once every week or every two weeks run to the grocery store, you're not going to engage with them in the same way because that's no longer socially normal in this time. And so we have, we're we shifting our behavior and what is considered the norm. Um, and we're all looking to each other for what those correct behaviors are. Um, and so for instance, like when this first became, uh, when we first noticed that this was an issue and we saw people running to the, to the store and buying toilet paper um, and either to hoard it or to try to to sell it. Um, this is really typical of pandemics or other types of issues where we see people engaging in a social dilemma where they're really trying to decide between their own individual self-interest and the needs of the larger group or population. And so the idea of hoarding also triggered other people to go in and panic buy because they then thought that the scarcity that occurred because of this lack of toilet paper on the shelves meant that these other people had some additional information that they didn't have. And so it was really a ripple effect because now the norm that, that they're seeing happening around them in their neighborhood and seeing all of this information on the TV triggered this uh, behavior contagion to go in and panic buy. Mm. I, 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 I think that's, that's really fascinating because I thought it was strange that people bought uh, perishable goods right off the jump. When people went and got milk and eggs, that stuff's going to go bad. So if you go and buy five gallons of milk, unless your kids drink a lot of milk, 
I mean, it's just, it's going to go bad. But the toilet tissue, I kind of, I, I kind of saw it, but it, I, I still think it was kind of a little ridiculous. People buying that much toilet tissue. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think yeah. we, gotta, we have to recognize that we're human and that, um, you know, we have to be, um, we have to give ourselves some some space to regress or to, to overreact. I think that's, mm-hmm. you know, a, a human quality. And I think that's okay, you know, considering the context. Another thing about that learning behavior from other people, I find um, like when they first said that you should go out with mask on. And so I got this mask I have from, you know, living in Rhode Island. It's like a, you know, it's like a thermal mask for like, you know, real super cold days. And so I go to the grocery store and I find myself anxious about putting it on because, A, I'm black and I'm going to walk in here with a store and a mask on. And B, what, what if I walk in the store and nobody else has a mask on? Right. That social pressure to like if everybody has a mask, it's a lot easier for me to put my mask on. But if I walk yeah. in, there, I'm like, yeah, I think that that's, you know, that's kind of I'm sorry. Uh, somebody already mentioned this, uh, but that you're talking about social norms. And, you know, if you think about where humans were a tribal species and you think about the evolution of the human species. So this is part of the reason why, for instance, people have so many, uh, so many people rather have phobias of public speaking who have never had horrible experiences of public speaking. There's a concept of psychology called preparedness. And, you know, it's kind of, we are, um, the theory is, is that there's an evolutionary explanation as to why people will have certain fears. And, and public speaking is, you know, a fear perhaps because anything that sets you apart from the group can potentially lead to your rejection from the tribe. And rejection from the tribe, you know, where we're mm-hmm. hunter-gatherers is life or death. And so, mm-hmm. you know, there, some of that is just in our DNA. Like we want to go along with the grain. We want to be a part of the group because to not be part of the group leads to rejection, which is incredibly painful for people. And, you know, it, it, not necessarily like walking in the grocery store and being rejected. But think about, you know, when you were 13, 14, 15, like your first experience of a breakup or your first experience of being rejected from the group, how painful that was. And even, you know, adults, you know, a breakup sometimes feels like someone just died, you know? So it's just part of the human experience to want to be accepted by the tribe or to want to be a part of the tribe. And I think we, we have this, Oh, we have this need to belong and this also this need to be correct. And so what you're describing about walking into the grocery store and, and not wanting to be the only person, like if you saw someone else walking by you and they had a mask on, that would be social proof to tell you, okay, it's fine, put my mask on now and walk into the store. But also that extra layer uh, of blackness and knowing that there are um, certain stereotypes about black men and black men wearing masks and that, that anxiety, that additional layer because of the identities you hold and your knowledge of how others read you because of the, ident- of the way that you physically present and identify is, um, I mean, that's something that we're not giving enough attention to while we're changing and shifting the, so- the social norms, acknowledging that for some people, wearing that mask is a more difficult uh, action um, because mm-hmm. of the fear of what could happen, how you could be potentially read, and what would the results of that, um, of, of people stereotyping you in a certain manner, in a negative way, what that could potentially lead to. Mm-hmm. So if you, I mean, I guess uh, going towards wrapping it up, uh, I'm just going to go around 
see if you have any uh, recommendations for just good mental health practices, good mental health activities, you know, because it's a, you know, we're, we're mind and body. It's good to, you know, exercise, but also you need to, you know, have good mental health practices. So if you have any suggestions for how people could, you know, give their mind a break, give this anxiety a break. And, and, and Dr. Smith, if you can end it up uh, with, uh, from a social science perspective, tell us what you think, you know, the world's going to look like, like, how, how do you think this is going to change us going forward and talk about, you know, cause I think people think, Oh, it's going to change. It's going to be so the change is going to be so great. But I mean, nobody ever thought we'd be able to take our shoes off at the airport, you know, and our belts and stuff and jackets and stuff, but we really adapted to that very well. And, and so just seeing how you think we'll, 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 um, we'll come out of it. Well, I'll just say that my clients that have been the most successful um, in terms of their um, psychological health during this period um, have done a few things. They have their their narrative about this experience is that it's an opportunity for them to invest in their personal self-growth and their relationships. And so that's their approach. And so, you know, if someone is struggling with their esteem, they may have utilized this as an opportunity to journal and reflect on what that struggle is about or to challenge themselves to, you know, eat healthy because now, you know, they can kind of really invest in that because they're not distracted in the same way that they were. Um, couples, some of the things that really common themes that couples struggle with is communication, and, and lack of healthy communication leads to a lack of empathy, which can potentially result in a lot of anger and resentment and arguments where it feels like you're arguing about the same thing over and over and over again, when really it's not, the issue is not this argument. It's all of the underlying things that have not been addressed. And so some of the tips that I give the couples that I work with um, is focusing on impact instead of intent. So if you find yourself in a conflict with your partner, and this could be a sibling, could be anybody in your life, you find yourself in a conflict with them and the conflict seems unresolvable, it's probably because you're focusing on whatever intent you had. You know, you want to explain. Um, it's almost like you become a lawyer in a courtroom attempting to explain your case. You know, let me explain what I meant. When if someone feels offended or hurt, what you meant doesn't matter. What you need to focus on is the impact that your words had. And so if you could be in that space where you reflect and summarize, oh, I, I recognize that when I said that you had this reaction, um, you know, most conflicts subside fairly easily using that as a technique. Um, and so, you know, there are certain techniques that you can use to improve the communication in your relationship. And if you're in a place where you have extra time and you're spending time with your partner or, you know, a family member who you've had conflict with, I would encourage you to utilize this as an opportunity to invest in that relationship and see if there are things that you can do to improve uh, the connection in those relationships. And then there's uh, always well, self-care, then, which I've mentioned. Hmm. I'm sorry. Let me, let, me just, let me ask you just to span upon, I, I have a question about that personal growth thing because okay. I, see stuff, I see stuff on, uh, you know, because we're all on the internets nowadays. Right? Yeah. So on the internets, and it's like, if you don't come out of this with a new job or career oh. or new, like, because I, I feel like that's that's not what you're talking about. No, I feel no, like no. That's, 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 that's putting more stress on people to come yeah. out of this. You know, they're like, well, you know, Newton invented capitalists when he was in isolation. <laughs> it's like, well, what? what? 
No, not at all. I mean, I think that somebody already mentioned this, but I think going at your own pace is really important. So I don't think, I mean, I do think that there are a lot of social comparisons that are made on social media. You see people that are, you know, learning how to bake or they develop, they're developing new, new skill. And you're like, oh man, I didn't even get out of bed today. And so I think that it's important to have your own gauge and to be able to gauge what feels like success to you. So um, a little bit of self-disclosure. I just had a baby four months ago. And for the first month, I didn't do anything. Like I, I barely got out of bed because I was so tired. And then I started to establish these goals for myself. And I was like, okay, so today I want to take a shower. And that was my goal. And by doing that, by accomplishing that, by the end of the day, I felt, you know, I felt a sense that, okay, I'm pulling this together. So today I want to take a shower and I want to check my email, you know? So each day I added on something different until I built up enough um, self-efficacy to, to feel like I had the ability to kind of manage this, this new huge responsibility, which I knew nothing about prior to having a baby. And then, mm-hmm. you know, being someone who was working 50 hours a week prior to that, you know, if not maybe a little bit more. So I felt very, I felt, you know, very unproductive, but that period allowed me to redefine what being productive meant to me because now I don't work as much, but I have a wonderful relationship with my son. I'm able to spend time with him. I'm able to see him grow. And so that's personal growth for me, but it's, it's based on my context and what I needed. And so I think personal growth is probably going to look very, very different depending on the person. And it's important that you're able to evaluate your own situation, not in comparison to someone else, but your own situation. What is it that you would like to see for yourself and the time that you have available? And like I said before, behavioral activation, you start, you begin to establish those small goals for yourself. And then this is your personal journey. You'll end up where you need to end up. Hopefully you'll feel, um, you know, you'll have a sense of self-efficacy if you're able to be in a space where you're not comparing yourself to someone else. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dr. Throw, you have any thoughts, uh, especially referring to like African-American children or children in general? So, um, you know, I, I think that humans are uh, resilient, a resilient species. And, you know, the vast majority of people who um, have been impacted by this event are ultimately going to do well and, you know, return to their, their normal function if they are struggling. So I think it's important to keep that uh, perspective. As far as, you know, things go with uh, kids, I think some helpful things that have been mentioned already is kids, you know, need structure. Um, and so as much as parents can, um, you know, maintain um, some degree of structure for them, having them uh, go to bed at the same time, you know, waking up at the same time, not just letting them sleep all day, um, incorporating, you know, some uh, enjoyable activities, um, uh, making sure that they're uh, connected, um, with, you know, their uh, social supports, their friends, their family, getting some exercise, you know, uh, and, and taking care of their health, eating right. Um, I think it's also useful for parents to um, provide some, to be well-informed themselves, um, you know, and to have um, ac- access to accurate information um, so that they can explain sort of this crisis to their kids in a way that uh, that is appropriate for each child's, you know, developmental or uh, chronological age. And to also limit some of the the, the negative uh, media outlets, you know, limit uh, news exposure um, and just talk to your kids about what's going on. Ask them what they know. Ask them if they have any questions. Ask them if they're they're feeling anxious. Um, um, and also as a parent, just trying to, I guess, being mindful of 
taking care of yourself, making sure that you know your mental health and your needs are are being taken care of, um, but also checking in with your kids. And you know, a lot of times, unfortunately, kids they they won't often tell parents what's going on. Um, and so, looking out for signs, um, you know, if kids are isolating in their room, not getting out of bed, if the kids are uh, really irritable or um, complaining about you know stomach aches or headaches, um, those might be um, um, signs that. You know, there there is something going on um, um, in terms of, you know, developing symptoms of anxiety or depression. Well, thank you. I know that uh, when I was a social worker, one of the things we were really concerned about was giving kids access to the Internet. And now with all this video chatting capabilities and Snapchats and TikToks and Zooms and all this type of stuff that people are doing to, to, to do, you know, the right thing, stay connected. But uh, I just kind of feel like there has to be some type of uh, um, something to be said about security because it's, it's really easy to, uh, to go down rabbit holes in the internet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And kids are spending way too much time on uh, social media and, and, and video games, you know, hours and hours and hours and, and unsupervised. And, you know, there are, you know, this is a whole nother uh, conversation, uh, but um, there are a lot of potential pitfalls and, um, you know, that, that are out there for kids. And there are, you know, unfortunately, predators online. And, um, and, and there's also, you know, um, gaming addiction. And I think these are, are real things that, um, you know, kids are, are being exposed to. And, and unfortunately, I think parents um, oftentimes aren't um, aware of or, or keeping a close enough um, eye on. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Smith? Okay, well, you gave me a pretty tall order, but I will say (laughs) that honestly, no one really knows what the world will be like when this is over, and I will not pretend to have some grand insight beyond the fact that I know that we will not be able to go back to the way things were uh, prior to the pandemic. Um, And depending on how long the pandemic uh, occurs, how long we're encouraged to socially distance, um, this is going to dramatically change our social norms, what we, how we monitor uh, each other's adherence to these new social norms. So whether it's um, making sure that people who are feeling under the weather wear masks when they go out um, or are frequently washing their hands or actually stay home from work, which is not something that we typically do in the U.S. We don't uh, wear masks in public because the social norm or the social uh, perception of someone wearing a mask in public is was vastly different than what it is now um, just two or three months ago. And so thinking about that's that's really going to dramatically change. We'll have that expectation that people engage in some more preventative measures um, and less of, oh, well, you go to work no matter how you and how you feel unless you're you're dangerously contagious. But now we're thinking, well, you could be contagious and not even know, and the doctors may not know. So if you don't feel well, stay home. I think that's going to change. Um, as well as when we think about how, uh, this is dramatically different um, in highlighting societal ills that were traditionally disguised prior to 
this pandemic. And so thinking about like the healthcare system, mm-hmm. if you were someone who were from a, a, a higher socioeconomic background, you really weren't aware or you were able to conveniently ignore um, some of the issues with the healthcare system because they didn't really impact you. But now it's impacting everyone. Um, no matter what your what your position are your position is, and everyone is recommended to stay home. You can't go and move and navigate the world in the way that you would like to, regardless of who you are. And I think that that's something that hasn't really uh, sunk into a lot of people how that's really going to change the conversation that we're having about some of these social institutions that really aren't steady enough to handle any type of issue, major issue that impacts our entire country like this mm. pandemic is doing. Um, traditionally, the way that we we ju- we operate in a we'll, we'll have the, just an, enough resources to deal with today, which, as we can see from what's happening now, is not a good way to operate an entire country. So really trying to figure out ways to safeguard against this big uh, type of fallout in the future. Mm. I don't know if that answered your question at all, but <laughs> yeah, that was great. That was great. That was great. That was really great. It's because we don't know. We really don't know, and I think it's just we have to take it, you know, day by day, right? It's yeah. We just got to do, do what we can do to get through the day. Yeah, um, and I think also paying attention to like the activation of like social responsibility. We see some people engaging in some really good and helpful behaviors with others um, and trying to to help their fellow uh, their fellow men and women and their neighbors engaging in, you know, shopping for people or getting prescriptions for people who can't leave the house because of underlying conditions. And seeing some of the humanity, I think, is also good at this time as well. Yeah, I think I think that's good, but yeah, I have mixed feelings about that because uh, you could just do it and not put it on Facebook. You know, I, I mean, if yeah. you, if you, you feel you feel you film yourself handing homeless people food. They already homeless. Like, why yeah. why are you why are you putting them on camera like this person is homeless? Look at yeah. look at this but person. I, He's homeless, and I'm giving them food. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like it's, it's yeah, like a, it's think- like a yeah. Go ahead. Oh no! I was just saying. I think that you know, yes, the people who are doing that or or and putting it on social media are doing it for some personal gain and some personal good feelings and relieving of some negative feelings for themselves. But there's also people who are doing it and not advertising it mm-hmm. um, and not trying to use it for personal glory. And so those are the people I'm talking about, not the people who are like, "Look at me! I'm I'm doing such good things in the world." That's not <laughs> yeah, yeah. really what I'm talking about. Uh, all right well listen uh thank you dr uh wiggins jackson dr smith dr dr thrower thank you so much for doing this i really appreciate it it's i had a really great time having a conversation with all three of you and i just like to thank you again thank you for having me i enjoyed it thank you